My name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, as the world remembers the victims of 9-11 and the US retreat from Afghanistan, which it invaded as a result, we hear from one man caught up in the war on terror. Mozambique, who was held at Guantanamo Bay, reflects on the lessons the West needs to learn and shares his personal story of detention without trial and being tortured. The worst thing for me was not my own abuse, that was bad enough, but watching a particular prisoner being beaten, punched, kicked in his ribs while his hands were tied to the top of a cage and his head was hooded repeatedly. And then when they uncuffed him, he just dropped and they had to physically carry him off. Much more on that to come in a fascinating interview with Moazam Beg. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast only exists thanks to the generosity of subscribers to the Byline Times. For £36 a year, you get a brilliant monthly newspaper, help fund our website and this pod as well. We aren't owned by any media mogul, we don't dance to any corporate tune, so do subscribe if you can. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. To those asking for a third decade of war in Afghanistan, I ask, what is the vital national interest? In my view, we only have one. To make sure Afghanistan can never be used again to launch an attack on our homeland. Remember why we went to Afghanistan in the first place? Because we were attacked by Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda on September 11th, 2001 and they were based in Afghanistan. We delivered justice to bin Laden on May 2nd, 2011, over a decade ago. Al-Qaeda was decimated. We succeeded in what we set out to do in Afghanistan over a decade ago. Then we stayed for another decade. It was time to end this war. President Biden putting a defiant face on the United States' withdrawal from Afghanistan after 20 years, even though most neutral observers saw the return of a Taliban government as a humiliation for the world's mightiest military power. As Biden said, the US had gone there in the first place after the horrific 9-11 attacks. Afghanistan was a key front in the so-called War on Terror, promoted both by President George W. Bush and his ally Tony Blair, which also led to the invasion of Iraq. It's a moot point whether it made the world any safer. What we can say with certainty is that hundreds of thousands more people were killed, many of them innocent civilians. And then there were those like Mozambique from Birmingham, whose lives were also turned upside down by the conflict. Moazam was living in Afghanistan at the time of 9-11 and later spent three years in detention, first at Bagram Air Base, then at Guantanamo Bay, after being classed by the US as an enemy combatant. He was never charged or tried for any terror offence by America or the UK. And he's now the outreach director for CAGE, a group which advocates for due process and the rule of law. In a wide-ranging interview, he started by giving me his reflections on the US departure from Afghanistan. 
20 years in the making, 20 years too late. As a result of this sort of 20 years war, we have seen death, destruction, the erosion of civil liberties as a consequence in Western countries of those wars and a deep embedded mistrust and I'd say hatred as a result of those wars between places and people that should have sat on the negotiating tables rather than to engage in a war in which no one could essentially win. Interesting that you say that it's led to the erosion of civil liberties in the West, given that so much of the narrative around Afghanistan is framed in terms of improving civil liberties in that country. How do you think the war on terror then eroded civil liberties here? Well, one of the things I've been documented for the past 15 years since my own return from Guantanamo is the kind of Guantanamoization of legislation in the UK. So, for example, with the use of secret evidence that you cannot challenge and cannot see in what's known as special immigrations and appeal commissions, people have been put on deportation orders, control orders, extradition orders based on evidence obtained from countries that practice torture. And as a result of that, what we've done to our own system of law is introduce measures the likes of which you'd see in Burma, i.e. house arrest under control orders, or for example, internal exile. That's something you wouldn't associate necessarily with Britain. In fact, in 2001, in emergency legislation, we had 16 North African and Middle Eastern men detained at high security prison Belmarsh without charge or trial. Now that's important because that lasted for three years. That's the equivalent of internment. And we know what internment did in Northern Ireland. It led to and became a recruiting sergeant for the IRA. And I would say this, that 3,000 people were killed during the conflict of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Less than 100 mercifully have been killed in the UK as a result of terrorism connected to Muslims. Yet we have seen more legislation in this country passed than when we did, than when 3,000 people were killed. So that shows you the disparity and the sledgehammer to use to crack a nut, in addition to what I call the laws and the wars on terror, which have both been ineffectual. So do these laws which restrict civil liberties still continue today? They do indeed. Almost every year there's been a new law since the beginning of the war on terror, as it were, a new law that almost exclusively, up until recently, affects the Muslim community, almost. I say that, for example, the Terrorism Act 2000, which actually predates 9-11, but the Schedule 7 provision within that law allows police officers to detain people, stop them, search them, strip search them at airports without any reasonable suspicion that a crime has been committed. Now, a Cambridge University study just in 2016 or 17 found that 88% of the people stopped at one airport in this country were Muslims under this law we are approximately 4 to 5% of the entire population. So it shows you the disproportionate level. Now what happens in this in Schedule 7 is that your DNA, your fingerprints, your photographs, the passwords to your electronic devices must all be submitted. And if you don't, if you fail to comply or answer any of those questions, though you've committed no crime or even not even suspected of committing one, if you fail to answer, you can be prosecuted and convicted as a terrorist. And that shows you the ludicrous nature of anti-terror legislation in Britain. And also, evidence shows that not a single, out of, I think, close to a million stops under Schedule 7, not a single terrorist plot has been uh, prevented. I've just been watching the BBC's incredibly powerful human testimonies of 9-11 
fantastic documentary. Very moving, would bring you to tears to watch it. And it just brings home the horror of what happened that day in New York. And then later on the streets of London with 7-7. Can you understand after the horror of 9-11 why the United States and the West felt compelled to act and why they felt compelled to act in Afghanistan, which was sheltering the mastermind of those attacks, Osama bin Laden? Yeah, of course. I was in Afghanistan when the 9-11 attacks happened. The Taliban didn't allow TV, so we couldn't actually see it on the screens, but I did hear it on the radio, on the Voice of America and BBC, and tried to get an idea of how serious this was. I had thought that reaction would be that they would strike Osama bin Laden's positions, which were uh, to my knowledge, in Kandahar. I was in Kabul, which is like a day's drive away from there. And Kandahar, for people who don't know, was at that point the capital of Afghanistan. The Taliban made it their capital. That's correct, yes. It was the capital at that time. Kabul wasn't the capital. But what I still have not understood to this day is that how that then become the justification for the war on terrorism, which spread across the world. And then the introduction, for example, of enhanced interrogation techniques, i.e. the torture program, and everything that followed through. Though Osama bin Laden was based in Afghanistan, the hijackers, of course, didn't train to hijack in Afghanistan. There weren't any airplanes where they could do that, and they didn't have access to those things. Most of them, I think, were from Germany, most of them trained in America, or so forth. So the question then would be, is that, well, what happened in those countries to stop or to prevent this type of thing happening? And there are, there are questions to be had about all the hijackers and where they came from, majority of them being from Saudi Arabia, and the links between America and Britain and so forth. The Taliban, I was there when they offered, clearly and without any doubt, to hand him over on the basis of the provision of evidence, to hand him to a third country where he could be judged based upon an open, transparent court of law. But the Americans said, it's either our way or the highway. You either hand him over or we will attack. So there was no choice, and that was not a legal thing to do. Do you think that was a sincere offer, though? If the Taliban had wanted to hand over Osama bin Laden, they could have ejected him from the country, couldn't they? Were they not just playing for time, not quite believing that the Americans would strike as they did? To my understanding, you can only take people on their word. If they say that we will hand him over to a third country as long as you provide evidence, I think that's a fair thing to do. I know that within the Taliban, there were people who just wanted to get rid of him. They wanted him away. But they still needed to show from amongst their own tradition. It's very important people understand the Pashtun tradition and Pashtun Wali of a guest. It's somebody, he is protected. He's a protected person uh, and cannot just be handed over. So it goes against their entire tradition, let alone their laws. And I think that riding roughshod over that, all, all it did, it says that America doesn't care about law because there was nothing legal about invading Afghanistan. When you say you were there and you heard this offer being made, where were you at this time and what was your position? Uh, I was in the city of Kabul, I remember distinctly that day. I think I, was, I had some guests and we were drinking tea and my neighbour, he came and started knocking the door frantically and I said, what's going on? He said, America's been attacked. I said, who's attacked America? Is it China? Is it Cuba? So he, he said, I, I don't know, just heard it on the radio, planes have flown into buildings. I, I have to admit, I didn't know what the Twin Towers were, never heard of them, never been to America. I knew what the Pentagon was, of course. So there was apprehension, and I knew a few years before that the US had done some missile strikes in Afghanistan following the embassy bombings. 
So I thought that perhaps there will be a handful of missile strikes on bin Laden's positions because he was the one being accused of being behind it and that that's where it would end. But of course it was not that at all. You don't have any doubt that Osama bin Laden masterminded 9-11 though, do you? I don't know if he masterminded it. I think the mastermind of 9-11 is not Osama bin Laden. I, th- I believe it's supposed to be a man called Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who's yet to be prosecuted and convicted after 20 years of imprisonment and torture it's believed that he was the mastermind. I don't believe that Osama bin Laden was the mastermind. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is held in Guantanamo and has been there in US custody for close to 20 years. But you don't doubt that Osama bin Laden was a supporter of 9-11? Yes, I believe that Osama bin Laden was a supporter of 9-11 and other attacks against the United States of America. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I just don't think that he was the mastermind. Mm. But in that sense, for the United States, he was a legitimate target. Well, if you're going after the person that did it and the person that prepared it and planned it and orchestrated the whole thing, that makes sense. But supporters, you'd have to make more than just Guantanamo just for anybody that supports strikes against the USA. I think they would probably be in their thousands, maybe even their millions. What was your personal reaction to 9-11? I didn't see the images, so I couldn't visualise it until I actually got into Pakistan. And in Pakistan, I saw the first images. I remember the image of the falling man in particular that haunts me to this day. I still can't get that out of my head. And the only thing that reminded me of it actually was ironically, sadly and terribly what happened to the Afghan men who were on the aircraft at uh, Kabul airport, three of them falling down. It was that thing of just the helplessness of a human being. You, You look like an ant falling from such a height from such a distance. And the idea that this was done in the name of something to do with Islam really shocked me, haunted me, upset me. But then I was to be a recipient of the response to it. And we'll talk about that in some detail. But just so we're clear, you would unequivocally condemn the attacks on the Twin Towers and the other targets in the United States on 9-11? I absolutely do. I absolutely oppose them, reject them, condemn them. And it's deeply troubling to see people who are completely innocent, not involved in war, getting killed. You had gone to Afghanistan, the Afghanistan ruled by the Taliban, with your family to settle there only a few months before 9-11. What drew you to Afghanistan at that time? So at the time, there had been several droughts. There was a drought taking place around the northern regions, particularly around Herat, uh, northwest. And, of course, the Taliban was in power. So I had friends, Afghans and others, who had been there and said that we are working on various projects to build wells, to help the country, to, crucially, to build a school. When I heard that they're building a school, I said, is it just for boys or girls? I know we have a boys' school and a girls' school. And I, like everybody else, believed that the Taliban did not allow female education. They said that's not true. What they've done is expelled Western agencies that have set up schools because they're deeply suspicious of... um, Western agendas, as it were. They would be receptive to and are receptive to Muslims, even if they're from the West, helping to set up schools, even if it's for girls. So I helped to build a curriculum. We bought playground equipment from Iran. We had computers sent over from the UK. And by the time I got there, the school was up and running. And I visited both the boys' school and the girls' school. We took them out to Kabul Zoo, where we saw the infamous one-eyed lion. We took them to exhibitions. I took them to see a game of Royal Buzkashi, which is, uh, if anybody's ever seen Rambo 3, you'll see that game played on horseback between a famous Turkmen horse and a carcass of a goat. So yeah, for the short period of time that I was there, 
the school was up and running. We had vehicles that would go and pick the kids up from their schools and the Taliban didn't prevent it. Here we are sitting on the Ladypool Road in the centre of diverse, multicultural Birmingham. You had a young family at that time who are free to worship as they see fit and meet people from all sorts of backgrounds who may worship other gods, have other religions or have no religion. What was it about the Taliban that drew you away from this to that? For me, it was, as I said, to work on the project. It wasn't the Taliban. It was the projects that I wanted to work on. And in particular, as I said, if it's rumoured or if it's said and if it's believed that they don't allow female education, to actually be involved in something that does promote female education, to, to test that water. I saw Hindus there. I saw Sikhs there. There were people of other religions there. I believe there are still people of other religions there that have lived. The country and the region has been both fascinating, shocking, and it draws some in, in many people and has over decades, whether it's from the hippie trails back in the 70s to the Soviet Union coming in in the 80s and people coming there now from the West. There is something particular about this nation. I mean, after all, Britain itself tried to occupy it and fight and lose wars there three times. You know what I'm saying? The, the Taliban has a reputation for observing a very strict version of Islam and women's rights as they're practiced and enjoyed in the West are not generally enjoyed. Religious freedom as it is known and recognized in the West is not enjoyed in Afghanistan under the Taliban. Was there something about the Taliban and its interpretation of Islam that drew you? Not necessarily, no. It was the fact that they didn't know much about the rest of the world and had they opened themselves up to Muslims from the West, Muslims from the Arab world, Muslims from different parts of the world, I was convinced and believed, and I think I have seen the evidence of that now come true, that they would be prepared to review their views. Because uh, after all, they were a group. Their origin is a group of religious students who were called in by people, by locals, to come and help rescue children being used as sex slaves. So that's how they came to power. It's important that we get that. And regardless of the, the freedoms, for example, that the Soviet Union had brought over, it left in its wake warlords, warlords who were taking children as sex slaves. So I don't care how advanced or how secular you may be, taking sex slaves, if that's the result of your secularism, then it needs to be eradicated. It, that needs to go. And that's what the Taliban essentially did. Now, they weren't aiming to rule the country, but that's what happened by default because of the vacuum created by the, all of those warlords that they started to get rid of. Although the Taliban themselves have been accused of marrying off young women in areas of Afghanistan that they've recently reconquered, marrying off on young women who we would regard as children to their soldiers. I don't know how much of that is true. I've heard the problem with the rumour mill is that there are so many allegations. For example, the Taliban have been accused of profiteering from drugs. But when I was there and everything that I've read so far, including United Nations report, is that they eradicated drugs. In fact, they were the only ones that were doing it. And that when they left, the opium production went up 66%. So it's difficult to know. I've heard also that the Taliban have taken part in something in Afghanistan known as Bachabazi, which is like using young children as sex slaves. But everything I've read about them and everything they've said has said that that's totally un-Islamic and anybody that does that will be severely punished. So there's one thing that's the rumour mill and the other thing that is what they've said. And I don't know how to discern in between uh, which is the truth and which isn't. 
Is it your belief that the Taliban this time will rule Afghanistan differently than they did last time then, that lessons will have been learned? I'm convinced they are. And the evidence for that is that amongst the first people they sat down with and spoke to were people like Abdullah Abdullah from the Northern Alliance, who was a very close ally of Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was a uh, leader from the Panjshir, who'd fought the Soviets and then later became close to the CIA. They've also sat with and spoken with and called him my brother, Hamid Karzai, who of course was the first president that was pr pretty much installed by the United States for the first years. So if they can do that, I think that shows something. They've sat down with Shia Hazara communities who before in the past they've been accused of killing en masse. They've sat down with, and I've seen again the images of them sitting with Hindu groups, with uh, Sikh groups. They have said and actually urged uh, women to join the government, to become part of the government and that the schools and the universities and places of work will remain to be open. They've actually told everyone now to come back to work, including the women. So if all of this is a ploy, just to state all this and then put it out and then to revert back to what they were 20 years ago while the West is not looking, then they will lose the support of everyone, everyone that's trying to say that this is now time for peace and unity and reconciliation, including me, and I'll be the first. In your own case, after 9-11, you and your family were forced to flee to Pakistan and you were eventually arrested in Islamabad at the family home. Just give me a flavour of what happened then over the next three years to you, both at the Bagram Detention Centre, where you were detained for a year, and then your two years in Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, so it was the night of uh, the 31st January 2002, was a knock on my door. I opened the door, a whole bunch of people standing there in front of me, none of them uniform, none of them showing me any ID. They pushed me to the forecourt of my house, put a gun to my head, tied my hands behind my back and shackled my legs and carried me off in the back of this vehicle where two CIA agents spoke to me, who I, I believed were CIA men wearing Pakistani clothing. And they said, you can answer our questions either here or in Guantanamo. Uh, one of them, he showed me a pair of handcuffs and he said that these cuffs were given to me by my wife's friend, who's one of the victims of the 9-11 attacks, and I'm glad I've caught you. Can you understand why you were arrested? Yeah, I understand two aspects of it. One is a general one, and one is very specific to me. So the general one was that uh, I remember before the bombing started in Afghanistan, the planes, the C-130 planes, were dropping leaflets. And I think John Donald Rumsfeld at the time said that these leaflets are falling like snowflakes in December in Chicago and they are offering bounty money for each person that's handed over as a Taliban or Al-Qaeda suspect. That's the general. The specific to me was that the MI5 had come to my house a couple of years earlier on, a particular agent called Andrew, and uh, asked about an individual that I had known who'd written to me from the Emirates saying that he'd been tortured into confessing that he's part of a terrorist group. Can I help him? with a lawyer. And that's how I first approached my lawyer, Gareth Pierce, who became my own lawyer later. So it was that information that I learnt that had been provided by MI5 to the Americans that had me on the radar. And in the 90s, you had taken part in two training camps, hadn't you? What might be regarded as terrorist training camps. I visited two camps. One was in Afghanistan in 1993 and one I think was 96. The first one was a camp of Kashmiri fighters 
who were fighting for their independence, who were based in Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a place during the interim period of after the Soviets had left of different groups and organizations where they'd set up their camps in order to train to fight what they believed was occupation. So this was the Kashmiri camp. I went there for a, uh, about a week or so, really more to visit than to train or anything else. And then the second time I went literally for a couple of days, it was two days, it was a Kurdish camp in Afghanistan near the border of Pakistan. And ironically, they were training to fight against Saddam Hussein. But I suppose it indicated, didn't it, that you had an interest in armed conflict? Yes, I, I did. Um, when I was in my 20s, I went to Bosnia. I joined for a short period of time the Mujahideen units there, who were part of the Armia Bosanska, which was a part of the Bosnian army. And they were fighting against those who had committed the greatest genocide in modern history against the Muslims of Europe. And you ran a bookshop in Birmingham, which published a book by a man later identified as an Al-Qaeda terrorist, not at that time, but who later became identified as an Al-Qaeda terrorist. So you had that connection as well. Yes, there were connections. I mean, we had published a handful of books, but we had several books on the concept of jihad, on the concept of self-defense, on the concept of repelling a foreign occupier. So all of that was within the kind of the Islamic belief system, which I believed then and I still believe now. So ideologically, you believe that it was legitimate for Afghans to seek to expel British soldiers, to seek to expel American soldiers and to kill them if necessary? Uh, I believe just in the same way as the British had trained the Afghan Mujahideen here in the mountains of Snowdonia and the highlands to use the blowpipe anti-aircraft missile system that the SAS had taught to Afghan Mujahideen. The Soviets at the time were a foreign occupier. When the occupier changes, the cause doesn't. So I think it was legitimate to fight the Soviets then, then it would be legitimate to fight the Brits and the Americans and anybody else that occupies the land. You can understand how, for many British people, though, the fact that you would have that view is an uncomfortable one because here you are living in Birmingham and the idea that you might give support, even if only moral support, to people seeking to kill British troops abroad is, is difficult, isn't it? Uh, it is in a sense. I can understand that to a degree. But I think if we were talking about morals, the Afghans, had they been coming here to attack British people, then I would be the first one to fight against those very same Afghans. The problem is that the British troops are going there to kill those Afghans. The Afghans don't have aircraft to bomb villages and kill indiscriminately. That's something that the British solely, along with the Americans and the Allied troops have, and that's what they did. So if people want to feel uncomfortable about their troops killing innocent people and then somebody speaking against that, I think that's a very deep moral question that they need to ask themselves. But they would say they were not seeking to kill those innocent civilians, they were seeking to secure peace, security, stability. I would say that they were seeking to kill them because they are armies and those armies are armed with some of the most sophisticated weapons known to humankind. And when you are flying airplanes, drones, dropping bombs that weigh 22 tons uh, on people, on villages and on houses made of mud and brick, that's exactly what you're intending to do. In the United States, despite three years of questioning, was not able to prove any link between you and Al-Qaeda. I always say that I've never been to the United States, but the United States has been to me. It came to me and took me to a place I've never been to. It took me the closest I've ever been to the United States, i.e. Cuba, Guantanamo. But after three years of torture, interrogation, investigation by the FBI, by the CIA, by MI5, 
by military intelligence, by British police, I still have a clean record. During the course of your detention, you've mentioned the torture that you suffered. I don't know whether you can elaborate on that, whether you're comfortable to, but at Bagram you saw two men who were so badly beaten that they eventually died of their injuries. Yeah, so this was in May 2002. I was interrogated by the FBI and the CIA. They threatened to send me to Egypt or Syria, where they had sent others, so it showed that they were happy to work with governments like the Assad regime when it came to the rendition program. They didn't send me to either of those countries. I know they did send others, but they had me in a room where I heard the sounds of a woman screaming in the next room that they made me believe was my wife being tortured while they waved pictures of my children in front of me and asked me, where do you think they are? What do you think happened to them the night we took you away from them? It was very leading in what they were trying to make me believe. I learned later, of course, it's not my family, but I still believed there was a woman being tortured there. The worst thing for me was not my own abuse, that was bad enough, but watching a particular prisoner being beaten, punched, kicked in his ribs while his hands were tied to the top of a cage and his head was hooded repeatedly. And then when they uncuffed him, he just dropped and they had to physically carry him off. The irony is that I didn't know that day that he died. Almost a year and a half later, officers of the Criminal Investigation Department of the United States came to me in my solitary confinement cell in Guantanamo and asked me to identify a photograph of this man's body. I did and explained under what circumstances I'd seen him. Then they asked me to look at the pictures of the soldiers present that night and whether I'd be able to identify them. And it, it was ironic because they said, would you be willing to give evidence against them at, at, at a trial? And I said, well, how would I do that? I've been held without trial here for the past three years. And of course, nothing happened. And you spent 600 days in solitary confinement in Guantanamo. Yes. Um, in Guantanamo, I was held in a cell that measured about uh, eight foot by six foot. And that cell was inside a room that was painted white. The toilet, the wash basin were all made of metal in the American style of, of the prisons. I couldn't walk more than three steps in either direction without hitting the wall. I was allowed out in the first few months, twice a week, for 15 minutes each time, into an enclosed area that was about 15 foot by 15 foot, covered by chain link fence and with a full infantry patrol, armed with guards and dogs and me being guarded by them. I felt like the biggest person in the world, uh, yet I was probably the smallest amongst all of them at, at five foot three. How did you hear of your release? A lawyer had been assigned to me. His name was Clive Safford-Smith, and he's somebody that became a very close friend. And he had been working on death row cases in America for, for many, many years. And eventually, after lawyers were allowed in Guantanamo, after two and a half years, he began a campaign alongside my father, alongside um, other campaigners in the UK, and came along and told me that you will eventually be released. I, I wasn't sure, but then literally two weeks before my release in 2005 in January, a US military officer came and said that you are being released to the UK, there are no charges against you, and you will be going home. How do you come to terms now with what you went through, three years of your life taken from you? One of the things I've done since my return is I joined an organization called CAGE, which, is, which essentially was set up to campaign against the Guantanamo detentions and to catalogue the prisoners. So amongst them, I think I've, I'm one of 
a handful out of the hundreds that went through there that have made this my life's work. And I have to say that's because of everything I went through. Many of them didn't. Many of the former prisons didn't. They just got on. Some changed their names. Some started a completely new life. Some do completely. Majority don't do any media at all. I've been doing this nonstop. And the reason why I, I do this is because I think somebody has to do it. I know I can. I know I'm able. And the toll that it took on me pales in insignificance to people I know who held in Guantanamo for 15, 16, 17 years, came home to see children that are grown adults, that were, and the last time they saw them were babes in arms. So I look at them and think, you know, I, I did okay. It is worth noting, though, that Guantanamo is still open today. There are still prisoners there held without trial. Yeah, there are 39 prisoners held in Guantanamo. Amongst them are people like Abu Zubaydah, for whom the entire torture program was developed. Amongst them are uh, two Afghans, who I think the Taliban are trying to, to get back. So there are still prisoners. And amongst them is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged mastermind of 9-11, who after 20 years of interrogations and torture and whatever you want to call it, has still not been convicted for the very reason why Guantanamo was set up in the first place. Given that the Taliban were in power when you went over to live in the country before 9-11, would you be tempted to take your family back to Afghanistan now and live under the what you believe is a, a, a reformist Taliban? I'm prepared to travel anywhere to any part of the world to do whatever I can to assist in whatever way I can. Britain is my home. Britain always was my home. Birmingham in particular was and is my home, has been for the past 53 years. And if I wanted to go and assist the Taliban in trying to get legitimacy by changing their actions and their views over the past years, I think I'd be happy to do that. You frame that in a theoretical way, though. I mean, will you? I don't know. I mean, I've spoken to Taliban members since it has gone on for, for several years and have always advocated for them to open themselves up to the rest of the world to ensure that you have rights for women. Not because the West is demanding it. Not because of the West. In fact, if anything, if the West demands it, I wouldn't be surprised and I wouldn't begrudge you for saying we're not doing it. Do it because your own customs and your own religion and your own faith does it. Do it because it, that demands it of you. Because you're not true to what your beliefs are. You're not true to what Islam's beliefs are about the role of women, the role of minorities, the role of advancing yourself and taking care of others. In fact, I would say this, that the West, if you look at how they took over Kabul, and I was there when the bombings began, when the Taliban took over, was relatively tame in comparison. They weren't dropping bombs, there was no fighting, they didn't fire a shot. So please do not let the West become your teachers in everything. The West would never, Britain or America, would never have said to anybody that they believe was a collaborator, uh, have granted amnesty. They would never have done that. That's never in the history of the, the West, Britain, and America, the most vengeful states that I've known. So don't be like them. That's what I would say to them. What of the people left behind in Afghanistan who, in the eyes of the Taliban, collaborated with the British? The interpreters, for example, and, and other people, security guards, who worked for the British. There are fears for their lives. Do you think those fears are justified? And what do you think the Taliban should do with those people? I think people may be right to be afraid based upon the level of their cooperation or collaboration with what the nation would see as invaders, as occupiers. They're a foreign occupying force. So it's right to be afraid. 
What I think is magnanimous, to be honest, is for them to offer a general amnesty. And the amnesty is so wide that they have welcomed members of the leadership of the government that fought them, members of the leadership who sought execution of Taliban members. They have released prisoners who fought and killed Taliban members. In fact, in the last bombing that took place at Kabul airport, we've all heard about the 13 Marines who were killed. In fact, these have been the headline news. The number of Afghans we're still not totally sure of. It's about 160 to 70. But what we don't know, and nobody tells us, and is not a headline, is that 28 Taliban members were killed defending the American position, defending the American perimeter. And they stayed in their positions knowing that they had presented the intelligence that an ISIS attack is imminent. So they still held their ground. So if the Taliban are now doing this, I think we need to change our narrative as opposed to them changing theirs. Where does this leave the West's foreign policy in regard to Afghanistan? The policy is in tatters, just in the same way as the Soviet Union within a couple of years, within years, crumbled as a result of their debacle in Afghanistan. Former head of the British Army, for example, Lord Dannett, Richard Dannett, said that the Taliban are victorious in Afghanistan. The West has lost. The current uh, chief, uh, um, Mr. Carter, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the entire British military, has said, and I quote, the Taliban are like uh, country boys with a code of honor who want an inclusive government and they should be given a chance. So if that's what the head of the entire British military is saying, who commanded 55,000 NATO troops who fought, many of whom got killed in Afghanistan, if that's what his conclusion is, then I think we need to move and say that they should be given a chance. And at the same time, the, the response of the West should be to learn that you invaded Iraq as a result of Afghanistan. You made the tenuous links based on the torture evidence of Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi, that uh, Saddam was working with al-Qaeda on obtaining weapons of mass destruction, which was a complete lie. Al-Qaeda came into Iraq as a result of and after the invasion, and it manifested itself in various reincarnations. Other Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who called it al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then when his cadres went into prison, they called it Islamic State in Iraq, and they built that in Camp Booker. And Camp Booker was run by General Jeffrey Miller, the guy who was in charge of us in Guantanamo. So he Guantanamoized the detainee process in Iraq and created the conditions where Al-Qaeda captives met with leaders of uh, Saddam's former government and created the demon that became known as Islamic State. And the rest, as we say, is history. Um, so that's been the result of U.S. policy. And the irony is, is that the Taliban ends up defending the Americans or trying to from ISIS attacks in Afghanistan. But the Americans would say that the reason for going in was the 9-11 attacks was the fact that the Taliban were protecting al-Qaeda's leader, Osama bin Laden. What reassurances can America, can the UK have that the Taliban in future won't protect people who are viewed by the West as terrorists and who take the lives of, of Westerners in their own countries? Well, again, we return to this, that since the invasion and the occupation of Afghanistan, there have been no attacks based in Afghanistan that have been launched from there. And that's, to be brutally honest, they never did. The 9-11 the attacks weren't launched from Afghanistan. They were launched from the leaders of those cells based in Hamburg. And that's where the majority of it was planned. The Taliban's 
entire raison d'etre has been to secure their own borders and to to remain within those borders. It has never been connected to anything outside of that. I think the more important thing is British foreign policy has created terrorism the likes of which we've seen across with ISIS. ISIS was a direct result of the invasion of Iraq and ISIS's attacks and affiliates uh, that have grown around the world are a direct result of that and much of that has been either homegrown or in places where there has been an occupation. The Taliban have said and have said right as part of the Doha agreements right from the get-go that we will not allow any organization or any individuals to strike another nation from our soil and if they do we will stop them. You do know that the, the United Nations group which monitors the activities of what the West regards as extremist groups in Afghanistan said that there were ongoing links between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Of course there will be. There's no doubt about that. Al-Qaeda's, like anything else, are individuals or human beings who have wives, children, family. They eat, they drink and whatever. They may exist as organizations or, or people as part of those organizations. Uh, we can't expect the Western-style banning of and putting on people onto terrorist lists and neither should we. If they give the undertaking that they will not allow attacks to take place. After all, the Taliban have been in control of the majority or a great part of Afghanistan rather for, for decades. Even during the occupation, much of the rural areas were under control of the Taliban. They wouldn't allow al-Qaeda to carry out attacks even then. So that's always been their policy. In fact, 9-11 was not part of their policy. They opposed it and have been on the record of saying so. One final question to you. Just before we started this interview, we had a little bite to eat and you talked about going around the country and going around the world, debating with people, explaining your situation. And you said that whenever you have meetings like that, there are people who call themselves 9-11 truthers who believe that 9-11 was somehow an inside job. And that includes a guy who was a, a janitor at the Twin Towers, a caretaker at the Twin Towers, you passionately argue against the idea that there was any kind of conspiracy theory around 9-11, and for, for good reason. And the United States believed that it was going to get attacked. The, they had good evidence and good intelligence to believe it was going to get attacked. And so we know that Al-Qaeda struck the US embassies in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam, in Nairobi and Kenya, in Dammam in Saudi Arabia, the USS Coal off the coast of Yemen, all of these were attacks orchestrated by Al-Qaeda against the United States for what it believes, for what it believed was its role in interventions or supporting interventions in the Muslim world, whether it's to do with Palestine, whether it's to do with Somalia, for example, where you have a film called Black Hawk Down, which is made about 19 Americans who got killed, but doesn't mention or mentions as a side note that a thousand Somalis died on that day when the Black Hawks came in, whether it is the 5,000 children who died every month for which Madeleine Albright at the time said that it was a, a price worth paying for the sanctions on Iraq. So these are the real things that Al-Qaeda says, though I completely disagree with what they do, are behind the reasons why they did it. And if you, you say it was an inside job, it's to say that none of that stuff was ever going to happen. But it was not true. That was going to happen. Do you support any interventionist action by the West? I'm thinking of Bosnian Muslims who arguably had their lives saved, albeit belatedly after the massacre at Trebinitsa by UN intervention. I'm thinking perhaps of the fate of Uyghur Muslims in China. 
Does the West have any role in intervention? There have been places that I have thought that intervention would have been, could have been um, possible. At least the idea of no-fly zones, I know that's happened in Iraq and with the Kurdish areas, they could have done that in Syria. Chemical weapons were being used by the Assad regime. They could have put in no-fly zones, therefore you can't drop chemical weapons there and the b- barrel bombs. But I think that Western intervention repeatedly to me has shown that it has been so damaging, so destructive, and its legacy will last for decades on end. There will always be cases where people will argue for Western intervention. And I am not in the position to say that people who are being massacred or tortured en masse and so forth don't have the right to call for that. I just believe that Western intervention will cause more damage than it will do good. Mozambique. And if you want to react to that interview, we're usually pretty lively on Twitter at Byline Times Pod. That's at Byline Times Pod. So feel free to join the conversation there. Or you can email me, goldbergradio at gmail.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.